the way they treat people and the way they talk to people and the way they go about their business get get close to those people and really uh, learn from them and ask ask questions ask sensible questions and and it's a really it is a really rewarding career Hello everyone and welcome to the Student Lawyer podcast series. Whether you're at school, sixth form, university, thinking about a career in law or exploring law careers, you're in the right place. We are the one-stop shop for student lawyers. If you'd like to join the Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. This episode is sponsored by the University of Law. The University of Law offers a range of undergraduate and postgraduate courses and master's degrees alongside an award-winning pro bono clinic so you can build up your legal experience while studying. And their experienced career service will enable you to put your best foot forward when launching your legal career. The courses are employment focused and based on real legal practice so you'll be better prepared for the workplace. Part-time and online study options are available so you can work and study at the same time. Click the link in the description box of the podcast to find out more about the courses on offer. Hello everyone, welcome to the Student Lawyer Podcast. My name is Stephanie, I'm a current law student, future trainee solicitor and the host of today's episode. Joining me today is William Peake, London-based litigation partner at Harney's, a global offshore law firm. William frequently spends time in Harney's Cayman Island office and advises banks and investment vehicles and their liquidators, shareholders and directors in relation to disputes. Prior to joining Harney's, William gained broad litigation and insolvency experience at Maples and Calder, predominantly in the Cayman Islands. During the episode, William discusses the benefits of having an offshore practice and the sad litigation case, which is the longest and highest value fraud case trial in the Cayman Islands. He also discusses the benefits of having a dual qualification and provides his invaluable advice to all student lawyers. William, welcome to The Student Lawyer. It's great to have you here today. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Um, Well... I'm very excited to get started with this interview. We've got lots of interesting questions for you. Uh, we were going to talk about your offshore practice and what it means to be a dual qualified um, lawyer a little bit later on. But I thought it would be uh, best to start off with asking you a little bit about yourself and your career journey. So... I was wondering if you could please introduce yourself, explain what your role as partner entails and tell us about the type of work that your area of expertise covers. Sure. Uh, there will be a lot of people in Harneys who will be very interested to know what I actually do. So when I'm sketching out what the partner entails point, they'll be like, yeah, what does this guy do? Uh so I am a litigation partner. Uh, I'm based in our London office and I practice Cayman law. That's the only law that I, I practice. I spent my career journey, saw me move to Cayman in 2005. Uh, I trained at a firm that was taken over by 
one of the offshore uh, leading firms, Maples and Calder. Uh, I had an opportunity to move to Cayman in 2005, uh, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And I ended up doing a 18-month secondment there. I then did a six-month secondment in the BVI office, and then I ended up moving back to Cayman for nearly... I think eight eight years, uh, and and it was wonderful for me because I like every uh, person in their kind of mid mid twenties. I really wanted to travel, but I wasn't one hundred percent sure how to do it. I was going to think of doing the well trodden path of having qualified in Dublin. A lot of my friends had moved to London. I love London as a city, but I felt like I wanted to go somewhere a little bit more exotic. But I wasn't too sure where. Then the head of litigation sat me down in the Dublin office and said, would, would you like to move to the Cayman Islands? I had heard of it because a very good friend of mine from university, Ben Galili, who's at uh, OGA now, uh, Ben was from Cayman and just to speak about it in wonderful in wonderful ways. And he's now somebody who's still, he's still very uh, good friend of mine who I spend a lot of time with when I'm over there. So for me, it was a, it was an absolute, it's absolute no brainer. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, William. Um, you know, I think that the, having the opportunity to combine travel with work in the early stages of your career as well, is just, as I said, a really fantastic opportunity. And it's nice to see that, um, you know, you took it and have, taken every opportunity that has come to you and built on that and and made a career um that you wanted out of life so congratulations for that well thank you why did you choose to become a solicitor and specialize in litigation and I believe you have a focus on restructuring and insolvency as well is that correct yeah I I I do uh and I I actually just realized that I probably didn't deal with the, the partner entails question of what what it what it is I do on a daily basis so I blend that into into this this response uh, so yeah I mean primarily my practice is uh contentious insolvency uh I have been primarily involved in the sad litigation and that's taken up a lot of my time uh it's still ongoing so I, I can't really speak about where the case is at the moment but I can certainly speak to some of the facts of that uh, later on in the in the podcast uh, so what do what do I do on a daily basis in terms of the partner entails point I think that for me I never really saw myself as ever anybody considering me good enough to be a partner of of a law firm and I think that that has actually really helped me in how I approach that that role I take it incredibly seriously because I'm sufficiently young or maybe better way of phrasing it is sufficiently not old enough to forget what it was like to be an associate and to remember the days of partners being there for me and, and knowing that I, I had a safety net and I was really lucky to work with some amazing uh, law firm partners, uh, you know, two that spring to mind, Ben Mays and Matthew Crawford. And, you know, Matthew in particular, uh, who's actually now, he's a barrister in in New Zealand. 
you know, he the patience that that man exuded in terms of my career development was was incredible. And I think that that is something that you you remember and that you've got to take forward that you've got to pay that back to people and you've got to be there for people. You've got to be accountable. You've got to be visible and people in the team need to know that, that the box stops with you. And I think that, you know, I do remember examples of working with certain partners who took a much more hands-off approach. And that's quite frightening for, for junior associates. And just because you present well and you're a polished individual, don't don't mistake that for competence. And uh and I had some, you know, I've had some really good conversations with uh, with Katie Pearson, who was a, a former partner of mine, who's actually set up her her own law firm, Claritas, in in Cayman. And Katie had some really really interesting insights on competence and, and uh, confidence of how I would say I'm quite a confident individual, but I need to be really careful about that. Because I could almost persuade myself that I'm right because I know I present well. Whereas actually the words that I'm going out with could be complete gobbledygook. And I think you need to really check yourself if you are a really polished performer and, and don't let just because somebody has has a meek voice or they don't exude that booming confidence. That that mean, that means nothing. You've got to, you've got to imagine that you're reading what they're saying on a transcript, and that that's really 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 important. And I think my approach to partnership is very. Uh, I work in teams. I never assume that I'm right, but I know that at the end of the day, I've got to make the big the big judgment calls, and my team have to see me doing that because if they don't, they'll lose confidence in me and they won't they won't follow me and i'm really incredibly lucky to work on the on the sad litigation with you know a massively talented team and you know we've got elaine mcgreal uh niall dodd and in particular gronya king who's been with me from the start of that litigation and you know, Gronya gets me out of holes day in, day out. And that is the role of, you know, she's somebody who's clearly going to have a very successful career as a law firm partner. And, and that is that is the role. And, and I, I think it's really trying to, to pace your way through, look at me over here, aren't I doing amazing stuff, to actually doing the quiet stuff really, really well. and. Ironically, for somebody who's as verbose as I am, I, I I think the approach I took was trying to do quiet quiet stuff really well and always trying to help partners. And I think that's something you know Gronya does incredibly well. And you know, really good examples of you know you know if you you typically ask the partner on a conference call, you're you're leading it. You know, no nobody wants to hear from anybody else. And, and I used to think that. Being a partner was such an easy job because 
I used to think, oh, well, the associates do all the hard work and you're just a mouthpiece when I was an associate. And then I actually, when the seesaw tipped, I was like, wow, actually, this is, this is, all, this is awful. Everybody's expecting me to do the answers. And, and you know, especially in this remote world, if I'm on a call and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm talking or something, you know, you'll get constantly be getting emails from your team on don't forget this point, you know, make sure you make this point and doing it in a really quiet way to make you look good in front of the in front of the client. And, and I remember doing a, you know, doing a lot of that of you know, back in my back in my day. I'm not that old, but uh, you know, just writing, you know, writing, writing post-its and handing them to partners. Uh, and then they would make a paper plane out of them and throw them at me. But uh, you know, th- those were the things that that's where you add, that's where you add value. Um, I think that you were talking before about uh, the people that you have um, kind of like looked up to in your career, Ben Mays and Matthew Crawford. Um, It sounds to me like, you know, having a partner that um, has effectively mentored you and really nurtured you to become, you know, the best um, associate that you can be is just, you know, it's just, totally invaluable to have somebody like that guiding you through the profession because you know it's 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 difficult out there and you do really need somebody kind of like shining a light to help you navigate your way through the profession um I mean I've benefited from mentors in the past and a lot of them um some of them um have acted as perhaps a soundboard and mm-hmm. have told me if I'm going along the right way or if, you know, I'm venturing off, you know, into areas that I don't need to know or, you know, incorrect. Um, and others that have really showed me the wrong and right thing to say and not to say and just kind of like acting in many situations. So, yeah, I can really see how um, having a mentor there to nurture you and to um, mentor you has been beneficial to your career um, and you mentioned the partners that were not so hands-on um, I mean me personally I prefer ones that are hands-on because you know it's nice to have them instill that confidence inside mm-hmm. of you um, but I'm, I'm just wondering if having partners there as I said that weren't so hands-on is a bit like throwing you into the deep end and testing your knowledge I mean to me it sounds like it would be good to have a mixture of both do you agree? Yeah, I do. I do agree with that. And I think that's the key is to work with a mix of partners yeah. as well to see the different styles. I, I've never, I don't think sink or swim is the correct approach to the development of a young lawyer mm. for, for a couple of reasons. Yeah. Uh, you know, testing whether they have the knowledge. They don't, they don't have the knowledge. They're in a frightening, scary law firm environment. It's weird. Law firms are weird. They're full of uh, quite odd people and it's just a very it's just an odd environment i mean i can still remember the first time i walked into a law firm i was like okay what's going on here this is all very weird uh so you've got to uh you know you've got to take that approach but also for the client you know why why is the client dealing with somebody in a sink or swim scenario Mm -hmm. uh so that 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 can't be can't be the case and I think that the best, I think the best partners are people who 
of course, are very hands-on with junior lawyers, and they need, but they need to explain to the junior lawyers why are they doing it. I mean, you know, Matthew Crawford, for example, he used to go through about four red pens a day marking up my work, but he would explain to me at the end of the day by saying, okay, the reason, like it was all kind of in there, but it was completely the wrong order. It was really badly formatted. It was very, but, but you, so you've got to be very uh, hands-on, but you then get to a place whereby you're acting like, uh, like in ten-pin bowling where they have the two things along the side, the guardrails oh, yeah. to help you get the ball. That, that, that's what the partner's role is, just kind of yeah. drifting it towards that that position and you end up having much more you know you end up coming to a much better place i think if you've that style of style of management and a dictatorial style will get you will get you nowhere because nobody will dig you out of a hole if you're hard to if you're hard to work with and if you're arrogant aloof etc and those days are gone i mean though i mean you know my uh my father ran a ran a law firm, and that was like back in the sixties and the seventies when it was you know it was all pinstripe suits. Everybody's really stuffy. Everybody you know was you know it was Mister Peak, you know, uh, etc. And those those days are gone, and you can't get away with that style of management. Nor nor should you want to get yeah. away with that style of management. It's completely ineffective. Yeah, I agree. Um, before I move on to my next question, I will just say uh, you were talking about dealing with or not dealing with, but acting in your team. And um, it sounded to me like uh, a partner who leads a team needs to be very self-aware. Um, and Do you have any tips or tricks as to how to become self-aware when leading a team? And making sure that you have, I suppose, empathy for everybody that's working with you, and then finally come down on the decision. Yeah, look, that's that is. If you could, if you could bottle self awareness and sell it, if you could monetize that, you'd be one of the wealthiest people in the world. Uh, and that's what we need to do on the Student Lawyer Podcast. We need to work out how to monetize that, and then we'll both be billionaires. Excellent. Uh, but yeah, let's, let's take that up offline. Uh, but but that's so self awareness. I think you get self awareness by you've you've got to listen. You've got to listen. You cannot, and you've got to listen. You've got to recognize body language, and that was one of the real challenges, actually, of the remote world that you couldn't pick up on that sense of the individual when you were working with them. You couldn't see when you were making a suggestion, and they might think they're doing an eye roll internally, but it's actually just leaked out slightly and picking up on all of those those points. And on the empathy, I will never forget moments in my career as a junior lawyer where I was really, really struggling. And I will never forget the moments where a conversation with a partner made me feel better about myself. And you know, my former managing partner in uh, in Maples in in Dublin, Andrew Doyle, who's a you know, really, really formidable character, somebody I got on with with really well, uh, but a formidable guy. But if he gave me a pep talk, I 
would walk out of that office. I had no idea why there was so much air in my tires. Couldn't really remember what he'd said. And I suspect if I went back into him and said, what did you just say to me? He couldn't remember either. But he was brilliant at making you feel like you could walk through walls. And you do need that because a career in law is is tough. There are really big highs, but there are real lows. And you've got to somehow never forget the lows. And And I think people, I sometimes think some partners do and some partners <clears throat> some people i've seen in in uh, in law firms whereby they've spent their whole career trying to become a partner so that they can put the shoe on the other foot so that they get to take their foot off the gas they get to tell people what to do they get to be out at lunchtime when they should be on the tools and that's a pretty, I mean, that's a pretty short-sighted career approach. And we spend a lot of time at Harney's, uh, we spend a huge amount of time at Harney's talking about self-awareness and, and empathy and what does that mean? And just trying to remember what it was like, you know, because, you know, I have seen a collective amnesia amongst partners whereby this this associate period didn't happen. You know, this period where they were nervously at the door of a partner holding a memo they knew was rubbish and going in to get it marked up. You know, they see a lot of people seem to forget that. And I I don't I don't think I don't think I ever will. And I think I'm surrounded by enough people who I've got a good enough relationship with that they would tell me if I was they say in Northern Ireland, losing the run of myself. Well, that's very reassuring to know um, for myself and I'm sure to the uh, student lawyer listener base who are um, embarking on a career in law. Um, So why did you choose to become a solicitor specialising in um, litigation with a focus on restructuring and insolvency? Uh, So I, I did. To, I think I ended up doing two litigation seats as part of my uh, training due to the fact that the litigation department had two huge cases going on at the time. I, ju- I just really liked I really liked it. It was much more in my wheelhouse in terms of the advocacy, the client facing, the ex- you know the res- excitement involved in it and. So I had a very kind of broad commercial litigation experience during my training contract. Uh, I think during your training contract, just do do everything, you know, make sure you throw yourself into everything. And I remember one of the partners that I sat with, he gave me you know, really good advice. He said, do, do the small things incredibly well, and then I will trust you to do something slightly bigger next time. And Because like, you go into your training contract thinking, I know it all, you know, I've got, I've got this, et cetera. And you, I think you get slightly frustrated that you're doing such small things and you're like, oh my God, I'm not doing anything. And remember that those, those small things, you're, you're a cog in a wheel. And if you're not doing that well, you're making somebody else's life difficult. And the, you just repeat that small things well mantra and you will, uh, you will get more responsibility. 
So a kind of broad commercial litigation practice then moved to Naples uh, Cayman office, which is you know, which is a huge funds practice and a huge distressed funds practice. And their entire litigation department was a contentious insolvency. I did a couple of very big hedge fund collapses. Uh, I did a Dominican Republic bank collapse and i just find it really interesting you know i find it because the 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 big aspect of a lot of the work that i do is you've got huge conflicts of laws questions because there's such a jurisdictional tapestry in terms of where where is involved and if you're doing a hedge fund collapse the constituent elements of that structure will be based all over the the world so you know you might be in new york you might be in cayman you might be in switzerland uh i did actually a big uh collapse of a bank in portugal which was uh really interesting in terms of it was the, the it was the portuguese cayman subsidiary that went into liquidation and then we had to arrive over to uh lisbon so i was going back and forth with uh, Simon Conway, who's a partner in PwC in Cayman, uh, there and yeah, it's really good fun, you know. And I was like, you know, I think I'm slightly more. Um, I think I like travel a little bit less now, so because I do, I do an awful lot of it. So the kind of glamour has slightly come up. You can only take so many Ryanair flights, uh, but I did love that when I was in my kind of mid to late twenties of getting that opportunity to do things like that. I, I absolutely loved it. Uh, and yeah, I just find, just find the work really, really, really interesting. And, you know, in the same way, but it's really interesting. If you tra- chat to a transactional lawyer, they find w- what litigators do really boring and too kind of haphazard and no consistency. Whereas I, I find what the work that they do, oh my God, I'd need a, li- a little bit more volatility in what yeah. I was, what I was doing. But at the same time, the but the interesting thing about about offshore, and I'm, I'm sure we'll we'll come on to this, is that you, I think, as a contentious insolvency lawyer, you end up becoming a reasonably decent transactional lawyer. I wouldn't put it any higher than that, in case my transactional partners uh, disabuse you of that of that statement. But because you spend so much time reviewing the constitutional documents the articles uh the memo and arts you know the the offering memorandums and all of the architecture around the funds and and the corporate structures you actually end up knowing quite a lot about about that you feel really equipped to to deal with it and in in the same way that some of my transactional colleagues uh I, I, they, they know litigation in, inside out because they've been in the in the belly of the beast as well, and that's one of the great things about offshore is that you end up not being pigeonholed into you know very very tight specific departments, and I much prefer that because I like, I kind of like not knowing exactly what's on my desk uh, each day. Yeah. Not, you know, because I think I think if I was doing the same stuff every day, I'd get quite I'd get quite bored. This is it. It sounds like um, variety in a day is definitely um, 
uh, kind of like crucial to keep you ticking along and, and keeping things exciting and especially somebody like yourself who likes that travel and I suppose that um, jet setting kind of uh, career and, and lifestyle perhaps um, but just whilst you were talking about the whole litigation um, uh, practice area it is something that um, I've been told anyway previously that um, all trainees would benefit from doing a seat in litigation um, as I'm going to quote um, a partner in a, a financial practice area at um, a law firm that I've spoken to once before. People in uh, litigation just uh, come up with solutions to problems that people in other practice areas just you know wouldn't generally think of mm. um so they're just fantastic i don't really like to use the word problem solve i like a uh, solution finder but yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> apparently their, their minds just work in incredible ways so um yeah it is very appealing to to do a, lit- a seat in litigation just you know to to really kind of like push your limits and expand your mind um and when you were talking about starting off with small tasks I can really see how that would work as well. I've just come out of a summer internship where um, I was in an environment that I hadn't worked in before. Uh, but a lot of the work I had was admin based and a lot of uploading and copying and pasting. So these were quite small tasks. But if I had done them incorrectly, then the company would um, either not get paid or their customers would lose out on uh, products. So although it was a small task um, in the in the sense that it was, you know, quite repetitive and not really that mentally challenging, what I got from that was, you know, I needed to have fantastic attention to detail and and focus that you know was not um well just great focus as well because you know if I got distracted and I didn't do all these uh, uploads correctly as I said it would have really impacted the business so um yeah starting small but doing these small tasks um efficiently I think is very important so I really do agree with everything that you have just said great so I was just wondering if you could uh, perhaps explain the reason that you took your career from Dublin to Cayman and the BVI and then back to London. So basically, uh, for me, I was lucky that I had a kind of try before you buy. I was able to do a secondment and get a real flavour for Cayman and BVI and, and that lifestyle. And I really, I instantly fell in love with it. Uh, being Irish, I'm not used to seeing the sun so that was a lovely novelty and it really appealed to me the kind of outdoor of you know being able to spend a lot of time outdoor and uh yeah it was it was great and also uh you have the proximity to the states i i absolutely love the states i lived there for a while when i was in while i was younger during kind of years in university uh love new york love miami so I could go there an awful lot and I would be up in New York every kind of six weeks. I'd be up in Miami every month and that was good for fueling my my sneaker addiction. I would spend a lot of time in New York buying sneakers that I didn't need. Uh, but that's, that's for another podcast. Uh, and 
yeah and then i so i'd been basically been there in total about about 10 years i think and i always wanted to live in london and i um basically i took so i i felt like i wanted to take some time out from from law uh to basically i had an opportunity to i kind of saved enough money to take a year out i wanted actually to do some uh some stand-up comedy and to do some comedy writing for some friends of mine so yeah so i basically took a year out and and did that knowing that i would eventually get you know get back into get back into law and i uh wasn't exactly selling out the O2. So I decided to go back to dip my toe in the legal market, sat down. I'd always I'd always had this idea that why did we not have a Cayman litigator in London? Because a lot of my clients uh and the firm's clients that I was at previously were in London. And I was like, if I'm able to get in a taxi and go round to these offices and sit in with them when they phone. Is that not a no-brainer? And also that we're there, we're four hours ahead. The, the person in London is not waiting for the lawyer in Cayman to wake up. So I was like, you know, so it's six, five, six hours behind, depending on, on, on where it is in the year. But it just felt like you had from nine to one o'clock every day of this vast oasis of, of clients and so sat down with a couple of firms uh instantly liked what harney's had to say uh had a really good kind of instant rapport with phil kite who's the global head of litigation at, at harney's and he was like yeah I, I agree with you this is what i'm trying to do on the bvi side uh so i had the other other half of of phil's amulet and then we basically, yeah, we just basically developed the Harney's London kind of litigation presence, and it's been a it's been a real a real success. And I've been lucky that uh, because my practices came on, Harney's is completely was you know I joined Harney's as uh, as a senior associate, and it was completely devoted to the principle of. I need to go back to Cayman regularly to have any credibility in the London market. And I think the other point that I cottoned on to quite quickly was in London, I wasn't marketing Harneys. I was marketing offshore jurisdictions. And that was a really, once that penny dropped for me, I, I kind of, it unlocked a huge amount of work because what I was actually doing was dispelling a cynicism about offshore to people who didn't understand it and explaining to them the infrastructure of the court system, the financial services division, the court of appeal is ex-English court of appeal judges. This is a really, really familiar system with high quality legal practitioners, high quality insolvency practitioners. And this is, you know, London in the sun. And once I cracked cracked that formula, uh, I we really started to win a huge amount of of work. Uh, I think you need to be a very particular type of individual in London to make an offshore litigation practice work because I think you need to be 
prepared to be out and about a lot, meeting clients, really jumping on things incredibly quickly because it's all about, because I take the view that if they're not, if they phone me and I don't answer or they email me and I don't answer, they're just going to go next on the Rolodex and find the next person that, that they know. Uh, so, yeah, so just building up those those relationships. And my approach to kind of business development is I've a, r- rather than try and be, have a hundred clients, I've got, you know, I've got a set of maybe 10, 15 who I just focus on and and I also kind of naturally drift towards people who have, have things and things in common with, and um, so it's a bit more it's it's more fun than than a job because I couldn't spend a lot of time with people who I've got nothing nothing in common with. That would yeah. kill me. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, what do you think the key benefits are of working in uh, multiple international locations? So, I I think. Yeah, look, that's that's a really good question. That is, you know, why why move off offshore? I think that you you get exposure to people who have very common values to you. The people who have who have moved offshore for a for a reason. Typically, any law firm will be built up of ex Magic Circle lawyers or equivalents from New Zealand, uh, Australia, etc. So you're dealing with really bright crackling intellects so that's great you know it's superb that you that this is the environment that you're working in your client base is all blue chip uh clients it's all high-end financial institutions the quality ip shops uh and you definitely get that you definitely get that work-life balance and that's the point that everybody who has moved offshore will say to you and and it was really well described to me by somebody who said, why would you not move offshore if you move to, say, Cayman? Every weekend is a holiday in the Caribbean. And that is a, once you kind of, that clicks, you're like, yeah, this is this is a no-brainer. And I, I do think, and you know, my, my brother's, uh, my younger brother's a lawyer, and he, he didn't move offshore, and he was at one of the big, City firms. Uh, he's now in house at at news news media. But I did just to say to him, I said, I don't know why you don't just do this. Two years, it's a no brainer. And you know, he was in a relationship that you know subsequently got married, etc. But his his wife's a lawyer as well. I was like, you guys would have been living the dream because you've got two lawyers' salaries offshore. And I think that I would say to anybody, two two years. Because everybody moves, maybe not everybody, but the vast majority of people say, I'm going to go offshore for two years. And they either do that or they stay. And very few people go, I'm moving offshore forever. Everybody just wants to live that, live that kind of lifestyle and see, see what it's like. And it's a pretty intoxicating lifestyle because, you know, for me it was. You know, I love running, so I could run all the time and it wasn't in the rain. And I could travel a lot. I could go to New York, I could go to Miami. Uh so I I and you are your CV also looks really interesting. Uh certainly for a litigator. I think for a litigator, it's a complete no-brainer 
because you have access to work that you wouldn't get in in the city in terms of what what you're doing at that level and you have you know for me it was a big decision whether i go whether i become a barrister or i become a solicitor i became a solicitor then moved offshore became an attorney fused profession i was doing everything that i wanted i could get as much advocacy as i wanted i had all the client facing work as well and also we were you know we were getting bills were getting paid as well because of your client base so yeah there's an awful lot to be an awful lot to be said for it to be honest well do you know what as somebody that hasn't had a sunny holiday since 2019 <laughs> i can safely say that i would say i'd move to the cayman islands you know from forevermore so um i'll be that person so i think it's probably a good time to move um, into the offshore practice area of the podcast so i'd love to start off by asking you what the benefits are of having an offshore practice and how it can complement um a lawyer that has a predominant onshore practice yeah so uh i think that it allows you to see things through both ends of the telescope and i think that you if you go offshore and then return onshore, you will find that you naturally gravitate towards towards that work. And a really good example of that is Barnaby Stuck, who I used to share an office with in uh, Maples. Uh, Barnaby was in Cayman for, I think, maybe two, two years, maybe two and a half years. And he returned to London with Jones Day. He's now... Uh, you know, a partner there, and he his practice has a real offshore element to it. Uh, Barnaby and I are, you know, very good friends uh, first and foremost, but we also work together on a lot of things. And he sees the issues on cases quicker than the most onshore lawyers, and he's you know he's a joy to work with because of that. And he has also developed a massively successful practice as a result of having those elements to it. Uh, he also, I mean, he's a really good example of somebody who, when he was in Cayman, was probably doing the work of a junior partner when he was three, four years qualified, simply because you know he's staggeringly bright and can take on all of this, all of this work. But he had that environment where people trusted him. And, you know, he's working in, you know, in teams with partners, et cetera. But he was really driving it, driving it forward himself. So I, I think it just it does give you that. It allows you to peer around the corner and see things, see things a little bit more quickly than others. That's really good to know. Thank you for sharing that. Um You've touched upon the sad litigation case a little bit in this um, episode already. So I was wondering if you could please tell us the facts of the case. Uh, what is in dispute, you said, is still going on uh, and what your involvement is in the case and the outcome that it's had so far? Sure. So the sad litigation has been running since 2009. It relates to a series of events throughout the 90s and the 2000s. It's a 
complex cross-border fraud case that you you name a jurisdiction and it has tentacles into it. Uh, it's it turns on the facts of a QAT fighter pilot, uh, Man Alcinea, who became a financier. He was in the Forbes top one hundred list, and his disputes with his in laws. Essentially, uh, the Algacevi family, the whole case turns on two concepts, knowledge and authority of borrowing between uh, between those, those individuals. It was the longest running case in the Commonwealth, uh, longest running trial. Sorry, it took 13 months to be heard. It was the longest running appeal in the Commonwealth as well. It took uh, nearly six weeks to be heard. Uh, the courtroom every day would have 50, 60 people in it. Uh, it was a hugely interesting case to be involved with. Uh, we've just received the Court of Appeal judgment, which largely upheld everything from the Court of First Instance. And uh, yeah, it was fantastic. I mean, we we acted for the joint official liquidators uh Nick Matthews and Mark Longbottom at the time, uh, who's been replaced by Mitch Mansfield. Uh, and Nick is based in London. And this was, Stephanie, you couldn't have made up a better case for Harneys to show off its London litigation practice. Because, fantastic. Yeah, it was fantastic. Because Nick, you know, Nick is an incredibly uh, smart uh easy to deal with client uh he's based in london so he was in my time zone so we got into this incredible rhythm of we would work on documents in the morning documents would go out to the cayman office and then they would turn around the documents flip them over to us in the morning and uh we did a huge amount of travel off the back of that case we were in cayman back and forth for nearly four four years and my living room was just a collection of suitcases from going here there here there and everywhere we spent quite a bit of time in the middle east uh the algasebi family are based in al-kabar which is the capital of the eastern province and yeah it was a really really good good fun case to be to be involved with we were led by Tom Lowe, QC of Wilberforce Chambers. Yeah. And yeah, it was it was really good fun. I will never be involved in a case like it again. Uh, and I have never eaten as many falafel wraps, which was our lunch every day for 13. I, yeah, we just it was I had a lot of falafel wraps. Uh, and yeah, really good fun. And still, it's still it's still going. And it gave me really good exposure to so many firms, and it also kind of taught me. You know, one 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 lesson that you you definitely learn as a litigator is um, that your inverted commas opponent could also be a really great source of work in terms of if you have a good relationship with that individual, because it's not you're not. You don't have any 
animus towards the individual running the other case. Some people let litigation get so personal. I'm maybe I need to get a little bit more like that, but I, I just don't. I'm like, well, I mean, the person sent the letter because they were instructed to send the letter. That's not it's not their fault. And you know, I've developed some really good relationships on cases uh with with the other side. And it's really important to remember that I think that every, every every opportunity or every piece of work you do is an opportunity to impress somebody. And uh, you know, I was opposite Sarah Sarah Walker at, at King and Spalding quite early in my career in in Harneys. And Sarah's you know turned out to be you know a good a good friend of mine and somebody who you know, we refer work to each other, but that started in a really angst-ridden piece of litigation where everybody didn't like everybody. And Sarah and I were able to kind of cut through that by just being being normal. You know, never underestimate the power of being normal in in the world of law. It goes it goes a very long goes a very long way. Absolutely. Yeah. So if if if, if, if anybody takes nothing else out of this, uh, be be normal. Of course, as well, and always be polite and have manners because you know you might be up against uh, um, a, a solicitor in in one case, but you know the next matter you get in, you could be working together if multiple law firms are are working on on that piece. So um, that I think is very important to remember. You know, there's no need to um, I suppose take things personally. We're all on the same team at the end of the day. I'd like to take a moment to speak about the University of Law, which is the university I decided to study my LPC at. The University of Law is the sponsor of this podcast and makes it possible for us to continue bringing these episodes to you. So we really appreciate you supporting us by supporting our sponsors. What really sets the University of Law apart from other universities is its belief in training students for the real world from the moment they accept a place. The University of Law's experienced career service and award-winning pro bono clinics offer students the chance to get real-life legal experience which can boost employability. They offer a range of undergraduate and postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students excel at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses to help students work and study at the same time. If you'd like to find out more about the courses on offer, please click the link in the description box of the podcast. So you mentioned that the um that the the case was very complex and was um what a lot of jurisdictions are um involved in it. Um is that the reason why it went on for so long? Yeah that's a really good question. It it went on for so long because the 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 scope of the period of time where where we say the fraud was being perpetrated was was so long all of the documents were in arabic so there was a huge translation uh, exercise to take place the the filing system of the, of the family uh because this was all, this was all, you know, 70s, 80s. This is all paper files. And it's very, so really, really document intensive. The issues were, uh, were complex when you first looked at them. But it, actually, if you drilled down on it, it all turned on 
on knowledge and and authority. And the money flows were disparate. So trying to follow the money was quite uh, was quite tricky. Mm. And you're also just dealing, you're dealing with a huge amount of, of personalities. You're dealing with a huge amount of liquidators, different approaches. Some people have a common interest, some don't. And what you find about if you if you create a common interest with a certain set of parties, you'll find that it's it's common until it's not. And then it's suddenly the wheels fall off quite quite quickly. And uh yeah, and you know, trying to get, I mean, I can still see, you know, walls of of paper files for that for that case. And we did do we had an electronic trial bundle, but some of the the silks wanted wanted paper copies. Uh even you know the exercise of uploading all the documents to uh Magnum Opus was crazy. You know, and and it actually goes back to because when you were saying about your summer internship and doing, you know, doing the small things well, mm. there's a brilliant example of if you refer to a bundled reference in a hearing and the document that you refer to doesn't show up on the screen, wheels off. And yeah. you can be damn sure that everybody is staring at the most junior solicitor on, in that team. And it's really interesting that, you know, you and I, you know, I was involved in a lot of you know, bundle reference exercises as as a trainee and as a junior uh, lawyer, and I really didn't think it was important because I was like, "Oh, yeah, look at this rubbish." And then I, I remember I screwed up a, a bundle reference and I got a absolute rollicking for it, and rightly so because I, I completely screwed up, and I was damn sure that I didn't make make that mistake again. Because suddenly, the whole world. Feels like there's just like a million spotlights on you. It's not very, it's not very pleasant. Yeah, I mean, something that's mentioned in almost every podcast episode, um, a piece of advice is do everything you know a hundred and ten percent because yeah, you, know, you may not think that somebody is watching or you may not think it matters, but it really does. And yeah. you don't want you don't want to build a bad reputation for yourself just simply because at that moment in time you didn't think that this small task was important. I think that reputation goes a very long way and it only takes, you know, just one person who you don't usually work with to see your not so uh, top quality piece of work for them to then think that that's how you act on a regular basis. Totally. Totally. Just you know, always showing up and being the best version of yourself, I think is very important. So thank you very much for um, sending that message. And as we're on, um, I suppose, the uh, subject of trainees, what tasks do trainees generally have in long running uh, trials and high value cases like the sad litigation case? So very, there's very much a huge amount of trust in terms of document preparation, in terms of privilege checks, but there's also a huge amount of discrete research tasks because they. that's the great thing about a case like that is that you're spinning off so many esoteric research tasks and that's good fun. That's really good fun because you're actually not just stuck in a sea of documents. You're taking time out to uh, 
to do something something interesting and and that's a really big role of of the partner in litigation like that i mean i think when we were full steam ahead on discovery you know i think we had a team of maybe 10 12 15 working on it and i was really uh hyper vigilant to ensure that you have a couple of frankly boring document review days but then you would come out of that and do something interesting and also because you're on conference calls 24 7 with the client that people everybody is on those conference calls because that that's the interesting that's the interesting bit and that's where you learn judgment and you learn you see the instincts of of more senior people and everybody's career will stall if they can't demonstrate good good judgment because frankly you know everybody coming out of you know a big city firm etc you know or anybody just anybody qualifying as a solicitor or a barrister is clearly smart you know they can do document review they can do prepare legal memos they can structure an email etc etc so that's fine but and you've got to learn all of those skills but but you get to the point in your career where you know seven eight nine years qualified you're thinking right well when do i kick on here to become a partner you'll only be identified for that by demonstrating good good judgment and you have an opportunity to demonstrate that when you're in conversations in the team meeting and you're raising points of you know maybe you're talking about a document and you know as a senior associate or, or council level you look at it and the partner he or she says well okay i think that's that and you say well hold on i think i think there is another complexion to this document and i think we need to pause and we need to look at this language and we need to and you know that's when people go okay but i didn't see that i, I didn't i didn't see that and and talking about things like well hold on a second you know you know i send a lot of draft you know with the time zone if i if i draft an email as the partner i send it back to the team and say any any comments which is slightly unusual because it's usually you know the associate maybe drafting it some you know some sometimes i'll i'll do it because i've had the conversation with the person or i i know what what needs to go into it and if somebody comes back with a comment where they're saying yeah i wouldn't say that because that will light that fuse and then i'm like oh great brilliant i didn't see that you've demonstrated good judgment that's impressive um and i think that goes as well to learning a management kind of style or a leadership style that works for works for you i think that you can and it's really interesting you know when people say well i can't learn a good management style because i'm working with really bad managers you know i've worked with really bad I work with partners that I didn't like, but I learned from that because I was like, I'm never doing that. You know, I'm, I'm never going to take, I'm never going to say those things and I'm never going to take that approach and I'm never going to be passive aggressive because there, there must be a handbook somewhere that teaches partners how to be passive aggressive. And I never got it. Uh, but, but passive aggression is the most toxic form of communicating. In, in my view, I'd much rather somebody is really kind of formidably angry yeah. or, or, or obviously annoyed 
Yeah. I can't deal. I cannot deal with with passive aggression. And if I see communications from somebody more senior with a lot of uh, the question mark is the most uh, offensive punctuation sometimes. And yeah. uh, you know, why didn't we do this question mark? Did we think about this question mark? Stop. Now is not the time to perform a black box analysis of how we're in this situation. Now is the time to work out how we get out of it. Absolutely, there will come a point where we look in the rearview mirror and we learn from how we got to there. But if anyone, if anybody comes to you with a problem as a partner, they've clearly thought long and hard about raising it with you. So they've they've got to that point where I've got to do this. You know, there's been the kind of gulp before they walk into your into your office. They do not want you to point out the problems that they know. They're very well aware of those problems. What they do want is to draw on your experience and your expertise and your miles on the clock to say, this is not as bad as you think it is. This is not as bad as you think it is. Here is the way out. And that's again kind of goes to that's how you, that's how people people follow you and that's yes. how people tr- trust you and how a team really kind of calcifies as, as a unit because th- that, that's the thing about litigation these long-running kind of big complex cases you're working with the same people all the time you know and so you've got it you've got to trust trust each other and they've got to trust you and it's it's all very all very mutual Absolutely. I think that it's really important to what for, um, you know, future trainees and current trainees to remember that the law firms have hired you because they want you, you know, to um, bring your creativity and challenge the um challenge the norm that has been set. You know, mm-hmm. they have they have accepted you into the law firm so they want your opinion I think it's really important to remember what with you know so many people um suffering from you know this imposter syndrome so it's really good to hear that um creativity and um individuals judgment is you know is really wanted and and partners do want to be um i don't know if challenged is the right word but they certainly want to um hear different solutions perhaps to the ones that they have come up with or already spotted yeah to, to totally and you know there's again that just goes to judgment as to when do you raise those those points mm-hmm. and you know never uh you know, I always used to think of it that I have a couple of coupons that I can redeem in terms of stupid questions to the partner. Yeah. And I'm going to try and use those really preciously. And if, you know, if the answer is apparent from speaking to, I mean, the other thing is, you know, you'll find in a law firm, the most senior secretary is usually the best place to start. Right. They are usually, they've seen it, they've done it, and they know whether it ends well or it ends badly. And uh, so that, that's, there, there's other places to start usually than, than, than the partner, but, but, the par- but partners need, they need the perspective, they need different perspectives because 
they've usually done things the same way for a long time. And as you say, you kind of need to disrupt that that logic. Uh, also, because if people are coming out of law school, they know they know so much. They have so much more contemporary knowledge than than that partner has. So yeah, don't don't be scared to flex flex your muscles there. Do you ever see people being um, or well, being slightly confused by wanting to contribute uh, creative and unusual solutions to um, speaking and well, speaking just for the sake of it to be loud and to be heard? Do you, do you think that the loud people are uh, doing it with, or mostly doing it with? Um, well, I suppose. Where am I going with going to with this question? Is there a big difference between somebody being loud for the sake of it and giving creative solutions? I suppose there is, but what's your experience with that? De- definitely is, and I think it goes back to that confidence competence point that it is the role of the partner to filter out the delivery and sift through that rubble for the gold and everybody needs to find their kind of line and length as a junior lawyer and i was somebody who i think because it kind of goes to self-awareness i'm really self-aware that i'm that i'm a talker and that i've always got an idea or something and i suppose verbally i kind of had to sit on my hands uh, and that 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 helped and but what i what i used to do was i used to kind of pick it up afterwards with the partner where you know if i was in a big team meeting or something and i would say i had an idea but i didn't know if it was a good one and i go right okay discretion is the better part of valor i won't bring that up but then i would raise it separately with the partner or maybe the senior associate and say what about this and mm. They might say, "Oh, yeah, that is that is a good point," or "No, that doesn't work because." So you've got to get you've got to get that that right, and again, that goes to judgment. Uh, but I think you you've also got to trust that the partner can filter out the noise. Uh, but the, the 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 confidence competence point is, I have been in meetings where I have seen somebody deliver an incredibly good point very, very badly. And I've seen somebody deliver a really duff point incredibly well. And nine times out of 10, you will see people drifting towards the better presentation point. And you've got to be, you've got to be so careful as a, as a, because as a partner, you are, I suppose you're kind of like an editor of everything that's in the room and you've got to, Try and tick tick all that tick all that in. You've got to discount it, and that also goes to knowing knowing your team inside out. You know, having those coffees, those one on ones with with junior lawyers to get a sense of of that of that person, and and then there's other people who some people are brilliant at this. That when they speak, you're almost you instinctively pick up the pen because you're like, well this person talks so rarely and when they do it's a belter it's a belter point and yeah so i mean i i do think 
the irony of me saying this, um, you know, sometimes less is more uh, on on that. But again, it's all relationship building. It's all building up that rapport with the with the partner. How do you get there? You get there by doing those small tasks well, building that foundation of trust, and then your voice becomes cut, cuts through the the melee a lot quicker. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. So moving now on to um, the, our discussion about dual qualification. Mm. So what are the key benefits of being a, a dual qualified lawyer, would you say? Oh. Uh, so, yeah, so I'm, I'm qualified in Ireland, England, Cayman and, and BVI. So <clears throat> I only practice Cayman law now. and. Uh, there's the adv- advantage of understanding different jurisdictions and seeing how they're how they approach issues. <clears throat> I think in terms of there's the, almost the kind of dual qualification aspect as well in terms of the branches of the profession. That in Cayman you are an attorney, so you are practicing as a junior uh, kind of junior barrister. And you're also practicing as a as a solicitor. And for me, that was a huge help in kickstarting my career. Uh, I think as an Irish, if I had stayed as an Irish solicitor, I would not have had, you know, I would never have drafted legal submissions. I would never have done anything witty in, in court. Now that may have that may have changed because I, I I stopped practicing there in you know 2005, but my understanding is it hasn't it hasn't really changed. Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. And uh, so I, I love that exposure to different, you know, getting the best of both worlds out of the bar and being a solicitor. Excellent. So um, just to, I suppose, clarify, um, you say doing the work of a solicitor and barrister the two are infused, if you like. It's not carrying out, you know, the solicitor's work separately to the and then passing it along to yourself later on to do the barrister work. It's infused. You take yeah. both practices and, and they're combined. Exactly. So you've kind of got, you know, it's it's very akin to the you know the US process yeah. whereby you've kind of got the the oddity of you know, you will have, you know, if you're say doing a doing like a sanction application where you're asking the court to say that you know the the liquidators can take a certain step or can dispose of assets for example in in the liquidation there is you know in the conventional solicitor barrister dynamic the solicitor will be dealing with the insolvency practitioner there and will be acting as a conduit between the client and counsel and refracting the instructions, etc. And uh, whereas there's one person in court in Cayman, and that's you. You're you're dealing with the client, and you're dealing with uh, you know you're dealing with the judges. I, I I think it probably works. You know, it works so effectively in Cayman because you know your client base is so sophisticated. I mean, you're dealing with uber bright IPs who are they're an awful lot smarter than me, and uh, so so that's why it kind of works quite 
quite well, I suppose, to kind of, you know, much more kind of conventional model uh, at, in, in the UK. But it just, it just makes you a much, I, for, for me personally, it made me a much uh, sharper and accountable lawyer because I wasn't kind of hospital passing stuff to counsel because the reality was I would be the one making the submissions in court. So I needed to really deal with the gnarly issues rather than hand them on to uh, hand them on to counsel. Excellent. You know, I think that um, whilst law students are at university and have decided on, you know, which uh, profession they want to take in life, um, so many people get asked, oh, what route are you going to take, the barrister route or the solicitor route? So it's really nice yeah. here that you can have both if you want. Um, and you're, of course, a prime example of that. So you're a commercial litigator uh, that, you know, touches upon different practice areas to keep your practice, you know, fun and exciting and have a dual qualification. Can other solicitors um, benefit? Well, can other solicitors who aren't, I suppose, commercial um, solicitors also benefit from having um, a dual qualification? I'm thinking perhaps, you know, like criminal barristers or criminal solicitors or um, civil solicitors. Yeah, I mean, you actually, it's interesting. I mean, the you know, obviously the situation with the criminal bar at, at the moment is, uh, you know, it's a remarkable state of affairs when you see how little they are actually paid and, you know, the approach of the government to, yeah. to that. And, uh, you know, I've spoken to quite a few friends of mine who are at the criminal bar and I just, you know, nothing but nothing but sympathy for them and, and they have my complete, complete support. And, but it, it's interesting that, the, the, there's actually quite a few people who move from the criminal bar to offshore because they're doing a lot of white collar crime work. And a really good example of that is, you know, the managing partner of our Cayman office, Nick Hoffman, who was at the bar in London for 10 years. He had a very heavy criminal side to his practice and he has completely moved into you know, high profile commercial litigation. But it's really interesting. His, you know, he's he's a very a very good friend of mine and incredibly close colleague, but his instincts on certain things are so much sharper than mine. And uh he thinks about things in a really different way. And and, and probably and in the same way he knows that I think about things in a different way. So we get to really good spaces. And that's why I really like offshore because it tends to attract disparate elements of the legal profession which makes sure that you're never working in an echo chamber and the most toxic trait to any business is an echo chamber because if you are sitting in a non-diverse room and i mean you know diversity in every sense of the word in terms of you know, ethnicity in terms of in terms of sex, in terms of where you come from in the legal profession, you'll end up with the same answers. And that's rubbish. You know, that's really boring and it's not innovative and it's not entrepreneurial. 
So you need to be, and it's, it's interesting, you know, when you refer to the word kind of challenge, you know, challenging a partner, I think your partners are constantly challenging partners. And that's where you, you know, that's where you create the result for the client. You know, because at the end of the day, you know, you've got to keep, you've got to keep bear in mind, why, why are we all doing this? We're all doing this because somebody is handing over an awful lot of money to harneys to solve their to produce a solution in your in your words (laughs) and that's that's you've got to remember that at all times you know this isn't some vanity project whereby you're trying to come up you're trying to be the smartest person in the room you're trying to come up with the most cost-effective solution for an individual or a group or a company that desperately needs your help. And you you've got to remind yourself of that at, at all all times. Because I do I do think lawyers, you know, hardly hold the front page news, but they can, you know, can absolutely get lost in a morass of, of detail. Whereas there's often a Gordian knot solution that is cost effective and the best thing, best thing for the client. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you um, again for sharing that. So how do you think that, uh, well, how should, in your opinion, should student lawyers decide on which jurisdiction to uh, gain a dual qualification? I think that, uh, I think you should expose yourself to as many aspects of the law as possible during your, your time in in university, I think you should try and spend time in chambers, which I know you you've done at, at, at Radcliffe Chambers. You should try and spend time in a law firm, and it's very much just detecting the rhythm of places and where do you feel most comfortable in, and also not just a law firm. Try and get into different sizes of law firms because law firms are not a one size fits all solution and you may feel better you may feel better equipped in a, in a much smaller firm in a regional practice might appeal to you try try absolutely everything because and you play around with stuff try and break it you know find out what actually works for for you because i i absolutely appreciate that i was incredibly lucky with some of my uh, career breaks i tended to be in the right place at the right time and i don't think that's very good advice for people because that's serendipity as opposed to a structured career plan and but looking back now if i could change one thing i would have exposed myself to a lot more different environments fortunately i ended up in the one where i know i'm most most comfortable but that was by happenstance and there have been you know there have been friends of mine who have you know, they've qualified as barristers, they've become solicitors, they've gone back again, they've gone in-house, they've gone into industry, they've set up their own businesses, they've, they've tried so many different things to try and get. Now, most of them, you know, now are where they want to be, but they all went through these kind of arresting gear changes to get to where they needed to be. And I think all of them would say, jeepers, you know, I wish, I wish I'd actually done a little bit more trying and uh 
because there are so many, you know, good, you know, good friend of mine, Fergus Wheeler, who's a partner in White and Case, and he would say, you know, and he trained at, uh, he trained at big Irish firms, Freshfields, et cetera, et cetera. And he would say, it's amazing what's available to junior lawyers now and aspiring solicitors. You know, God, I wish that even that was probably there when we were there, but we were so rubbish at, yeah. at finding it. Uh, and you're a brilliant example of it. Like you're clearly exposing yourself to so many aspects of the law and meeting so many different people via this podcast. And some people will say things to you that really click with you. Some people, you will say, jeepers, I don't want to be, I definitely don't want to be going down that avenue. And that's brilliant. Too. So, you know, I, I really, uh, I'm pretty jealous of how you've, you're doing all the things I probably should have well, done. Well, do you know what? I'm very envious of everything that you have done. And, yeah, you are right. Well, thank you very much, first of all, for the very kind words. It, it means a lot. Um, but, yeah, I mean, just hearing people's experiences, how they've navigated mm. through difficult situations, the opportunities that they've taken and what it has um, led to, it really does open up. Um, your eyes to understand what is available out there for you and sometimes even if that opportunity isn't available at this time I can see how you can make opportunities for yourself um, if you if you make right judgments as you know we've been talking about and just you know being confident in your decisions um, so, yeah, I mean, speaking to people who have experience in um, a whole array of um, careers in this profession really does help. And, you know, I think that back in the day, it was more difficult to find out experiences, um, experiences that other people have had and get them for yourself. But, you know, today, what with, um, you know, these virtual internships, LinkedIn. Mm. I mean, I just love reading articles on LinkedIn, on the newspaper, seeing um, a lawyer has commented or even, you know, written this article and then, you know, approaching them on LinkedIn to say, you know, I loved your article. I want to ask you totally. a question off of it. So there's just um, very easy ways to communicate with people and to build your knowledge, like to become commercially aware, I suppose. Um, so. I think it's just, you know, not being afraid to reach out to people, I find. But I'm, I suppose, a people person and I love to build relationships and mm. and, and, and you speak to people. Um, so it kind of comes easy to me. I mean, it's just something that I have always really liked to do. Um, but, yeah, the the opportunities are out there for people to make these um relationships and find out about the experiences and and you know reach out to people on LinkedIn I suppose to ask them about you know the jurisdiction that they work in I think that's a great way to to learn about it yeah to totally agree so William for the student lawyers who are interested in embarking um, on a career at Harney's what career opportunities are available for students and graduates yeah, so, I mean, the, the reality is that if we are not looking after that uh, group of people, they will never want to join uh, a firm like, like Harney's. So at the moment, we have on our website, we've got a uh, careers page. Uh, 
in the uh, London office, we do bespoke uh, internships upon application. Uh, we try to give people a kind of broad diet of what our practices are. Uh, we also uh, have a very uh, vibrant internship program in our Cayman office. So, uh, if you if your if your listenership extends to the Caribbean, Stephanie, uh, they should they should all apply. We also uh, have a we we sponsor individuals as well in Cayman and BVI uh, to uh, take care of their costs for university and take care of their training costs as well. And uh, we have a Article Clark program, which is the equivalent of, of trainee solicitors in our Cayman and in our BVI office. Uh, you know, our, our BVI office is, you know, it's the second biggest employer on island behind the behind the government. So we see our roles in those communities as very much. Um, yeah, it's a re- it's a really important one, and we we take it very very seriously. And um, we see how we are a cog in the wheel of that of that society, and because it's just so much smaller than than London and these islands, people know everybody. I mean, it takes you a couple of weeks, and then you actually you, you know absolutely everybody. It's quite it's quite funny actually um, when you when you kind of. Try and get your try and get your head around it. So yeah, so it's something we take yeah something we take take very seriously. Well, it sounds like you have got absolutely excellent initiatives at Harney's, and I'm going to put a link in the show notes to the website page that you were talking about. Great. So our listeners in London, and I'm I I do think that we have some international listeners. So if anybody uh, listening is in the Cayman Islands, definitely look Harney's up and um, excellent. Yes, those spots at the um, Cayman Island office. I am very jealous of you if you get the position. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that we've spoken about a number of skill sets that trainee lawyers and associates and even partners should have. Um, right, empathy sounding like it's the key one or, or main. Um, but if there are, say, three top qualities that you believe a trainee solicitor should have, um, what would those three be? Uh, so I think that I think listening is is really important to really understand what is being asked of you. You get you really get one good opportunity to ask all the annoying questions about what the task is. Do do not do not stand up from that chair and walk out of the office without knowing specifically what is being asked of you, because you will find that a lot of uh, people providing those instructions, they don't know themselves what they're actually asking for. And you've got to really drill down on that. So listen and ask uh, at the initial conversation stage. Uh, Then I think just immense attention to detail. If you prepare a document and say there's a typo in the first uh, sentence, in the first paragraph, the reader is immediately reaching for his or her red pen. And that just makes the rest of the kind of cascade down. They're looking at it through a different lens because they think that the individual doesn't, uh, 
you know, doesn't care about the document, hasn't really poured over it properly. And, uh, and my third, third point is if you are working with somebody new for the first time, what, and this is an extension of, of point two, hit it out of the park. It, give that person every assistance. And if that's li- little things go an awful long way in terms of um, if you're referring to a couple of cases in a, in a note, make sure those cases are attached to the email. If you're sitting down in person with, that in, uh, with the individual, maybe have the cases printed off, have the relevant sections highlighted and tabbed. Make everything as easy as possible for that individual, because if you become a crutch for that person, you'll just you'll just get work. Because one of the key complaints that uh, trainees and, and article clerks always have is that you know are we getting enough work? And that's because you will find certain trainees are extremely busy, and some and some aren't, and that's. If that that's an indictment of the of the employer because everybody has to be busy at, at all times. But the ebb and flow of an office, some people get more work than others, and that is because they have hit it out of the park when they first had that uh, task. Because you, know, you you only you know it's like a hallmark card, but you know you only get one chance to make a first impression. Uh, so make it make it a good one. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And it kind of links back to what we were talking about earlier about building a good reputation for yourself. Because mm. that, you know, it really does last. Um, so as we're approaching application season and um, student lawyers will be um, sitting interviews at law firms and chambers, I'm sure that many of them at this time are going to be wanting to improve their commercial awareness. So at their interviews, they can talk to their interviewers with, um, well, with ease about commercial and legal issues. In your opinion, how can student lawyers increase or develop even their commercial awareness? So, I mean, the way I think developing commercial awareness isn't a unique a requirement for student student lawyers. It's something that if you are in the financial services industry, you've got to have your uh, finger on the pulse. The way the way I do it is I listen to the AFT briefing podcast every day. Uh, it's like a ten minute, fifteen minute soundbite, but it lets me know and it let me lets me think about an issue in a roundabout way. Uh, I also listen to The Daily on the New York Times, which is a fantastic podcast, which is another half an hour uh, kind of soundbite of of US politics. And I think you cannot underestimate the power of reading, getting the FT Weekend. The FT Weekend is a a superb paper, but it's also a lot less uh, financial heavy than its version during the week. But the companies and markets page, just behind the uh, letters pages, are just full of gold. They condense the entire week's uh, stories and pick up on them. And those are the points that you need to be aware of and discussing. And you need to be smart in the applications. You need to, if you're applying to a firm that you know is involved in a certain piece of litigation or a certain sector, you need to, if you're, if you have the opportunity of an interview, you need to not 
glaringly bring that up like a robot and say, you know, I know you are involved in X. You need to drift the conversation towards that and say, oh, actually, I read a really interesting piece recently in The Economist, in The New York Times, in the FT, which referred to X. And if the firm that you're speaking to will, will boast immediately, they will say, oh, actually, we're involved in that. No, really? Are you? Boom, you're away with a, with a conversation. You know, if you're getting, if you're in the interview process, uh, the firm's profiles reveal so much about, about the lawyers. LinkedIn will reveal so much about the lawyers. And I, had a, I had a really interesting one recently whereby you will find as well during the interview, I do a lot of interviews for, for Harneys and uh, the dynamic has completely changed. Stephanie, that it's more they're interviewing me about Harneys than I'm interviewing them about themselves because it's a really, uh, you know, it's a really employee-driven market right right now. And I had a very interesting one where this girl immediately started talking about things that resonated with me, and uh, and then I worked. I was kind of going what is going on here? And, and she'd clearly gone through my LinkedIn profile and looked at all the stuff that I had kind of liked or had reposted and in a really subtle, clever way, drifted the conversation towards these topics. And I was like, that person has put in serious spade work. So it was really, I just thought it was really clever. And, and in this, you know, in a world where everybody lives their lives online, there is such opportunity to, drift conversations towards a topic that you know they are interested in and you've you've done the you've done the background reading on it that's really um really good advice thank you for sharing that I mean I I really like to listen to the FT briefing um that 10 minute podcast really although it doesn't go into extreme detail about the stories that they are um about the the news stories that they are um telling to you you are then able to i mean i do this anyway able to go to the ft newspaper and then read more in depth about those stories and you know that because of the because the ft briefing is highlighting these stories as like the main ones you know they're the main ones to read and then you can kind of like venture off from there um I haven't read the FT Weekend, but the FT um, podcast does do a Weekender um, version, and they talk about uh, the arts world and and restaurants. And although it's kind of more cultural driven, mm. you are able to then see which industries are doing well and which industries aren't doing well. And I think that that ties quite nicely in with um, the whole kind of like broad commercial awareness so i will have to start reading the ft weekend it's essential around to the companies and market um but before i move on for any of the listeners who are interested in uh, subscribing to the ft newspaper your university may provide you with a code so you get a free subscription so definitely look into that before paying for it so we're venturing now to the um, end of the episode. And after, you know, speaking with you, William, for an hour or so, I can see that you've got, you know, 
you've had or having a fantastic career you must have complete job satisfaction um but I'd really like to know what has been the highlight of your working week obviously I will avoid the obsequious sycophant answer of saying doing this doing this podcast <laughs> uh, but the, hi- the highlight of my working week was uh, I'll take last week because we're, we're pretty pretty early into into this yeah. one was uh, working with the Cayman team on a Privy Council filing whereby we had a very short period of time to turn around a document due to unforeseen circumstances and we produced an incredibly impressive document in a very very short space of time and the patience of the team in Cayman the incredible insights from the client working with the council team it just all gelled really really well and it was a really good example of the payback for years of working closely with the team that that there was no crunching gear changes in terms of getting the work done it was just it was just really really smooth and we were you know a lot of conference calls a lot of documents being turned around lots of client instructions etc etc and when that document was filed uh with a healthy half hour to spare uh that was yeah that was a really yeah i was really proud really proud of the team for getting getting that done Oh, that's really nice to hear. Um, so any last or any final words of, of wisdom that you have to share with student lawyers? I, you're making an assumption there have been some preceding uh, this. <laughs> but, uh, no, I mean, I, I, I think that uh, it's, a, it's, a long, it's a long journey. Uh, do not be disheartened by anything that happens in the first four or five years of your career to be honest with you because it took me until i was i think five six years post qualification to really feel as if i knew what i was what i was doing and i i used to have this uh, thought that on the day i qualified somebody would hand me uh you know a, a, a pamphlet which would have all the answers and actually this was all a bit of a joke and suddenly you turn into this amazing lawyer overnight and you you don't uh it takes takes time and i think if you if you work with somebody who you really like the cut of their jib and you like the way they treat people and the way they talk to people and the way they go about their business get get close to those people and really uh learn from them and ask ask questions ask sensible questions and and it's a really, it is a really rewarding career. It is a really rewarding career, and it's worth it. It is worth it because we and never, when you're sitting at your desk tearing your hair out about what what am I doing, everybody, everybody has been in that position. Um, so it's not just you. Thank you very much for sharing that, and thank you ever so much for you know spending this hour with us and providing such invaluable advice. Um, talking to us about you know your career journey and everything that you've accomplished along the way and everything that you have done and where your career has taken you it's been really insightful really interesting and 
motivating and really inspirational as well so thank you again for being a guest on the podcast and um I hope that you will come back again one day and talk more about your cases and provide the, a new bunch of student lawyers with um, advice. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure, Stephanie. You're a wonderful host. Thank you. And thank you to all the student lawyers listening to this episode. And we will see you back here again next time. To hear more of the Student Lawyers podcast, hit the subscribe button and leave us a star rating and review. If you would like to join the Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com.